You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'd like to ask everyone to take a few minutes to help support the show. This time, it's not the standard pitch to please leave a rating review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. My network, Airwave Media, is conducting a listener survey. You can find the short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, and I'm going to have it linked in the show notes with this episode and every episode over the next two months. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback will really help me improve who arted and art smart. It also helps us to find new sponsors who might actually interest you. As an added bonus, Airwave Media is going to be giving away a $500 Amazon gift card. So if you take the time to fill out that survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, you'll be entered to win that $500 gift card as our way of saying thank you. I feel like who art Ed? Who art Ed? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today, after so many days of solo mini episodes, I'm finally back to doing a full podcast. And I am very excited to be talking to an independent filmmaker. I've got Kalani Hubbard here. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a blast. Yeah, I I like what you're doing there. It's going to be a blast (laughs) as we're getting into sci-fi stuff. And I think you are the perfect person to be talking about George Lucas with because we know George Lucas developed his own independent studios and producing Star Wars. And he was also behind uh, the Indiana Jones franchise doing so many things from his studios that he created. And you are the owner of an independent film studio Pure Magic Pictures, based out of New York, right? You've Mm -hmm. written and directed a new movie coming out, which is also just, it's almost like we planned this, right? You're (laughs) talking, you just made Sky Hoshi Anime Girl, which is a fun fantasy feature film. And I can't believe I got that alliteration (laughs) right the first time. You know? Yeah. But do you want to tell us about your movie? Yeah, yeah. So Sky Hoshi Anime Girl is zapping your screen April 21st, as we like to say. And it's a fantasy movie uh, about a, a anime character who falls out of her poster into our world and uh, has to find her way back home before 
uh, her anime is destroyed. And so there's lots of laser guns and magic and ramen, and it's it's a lot of fun. And so we did a lot of cool practical effects for this movie, um, including a pretty epic laser gun. And so I'm excited to talk Star Wars with you because um, I just finished editing a movie with a lot of lasers. <laughs> you had me at lasers. Love it. And yeah. so now we're going to get into... Another favorite movie with lasers. I will link your pluggables in the show notes. I'll have your website and a link to the trailer and all that stuff for our listeners. And we're going to now look at George Lucas. To get started, Lucas was born, like most people were, um, he was born specifically in May 14th, 1944 in Modesto, California. Now, as a kid... Not huge shock here. He loved comic books and stuff like that. I've heard a lot about his love of like the spaghetti westerns that were popular on TV. This little bit I didn't know until I started doing the research, though. When he was 15, his family moved to a ranch like a few miles away from his old neighborhood friends. And at this point, he turned his attention more towards, like, rock music and cars. Like, the thing to do was to go cruising, and I don't know. Like, that's just not a thing I did as a kid. I liked the music. Um, before I was an okay artist, I was a terrible musician. <laughs> and, you know, I always loved, like, the punk and the DIY aesthetic and stuff like Love that. It. But um, he loved cars until... and. Obviously, that would come up later on, like 1973, the classic American graffiti, but he wanted to be a race car driver. That was put to a quick end when he he got into a car crash just a few days before graduating high school. And I've heard accounts of this, like I've read accounts where they're like, oh, you know, he got into, um, you know, a minor car crash. Like his car was completely destroyed and he almost died he said his friends actually thought that he died in that car crash for a while it was so mangled like it couldn't even be towed they had to put it on like a flatbed or something to take That's it away crazy yeah and I, as a parent myself the thing that i find just most horrifying is his mother heard the crash because it happened at the end of their street so she goes oh out when she hears this sound and then she sees her son's car and he spent two weeks in the hospital there and then another four months recovering at home and this is one of those things that just because of the structure of star wars and lucas's storytelling i i would say like this is the part in our hero's journey that would be like the abyss the death and rebirth because george lucas in interviews he described this as sort of a, his second chance at life or at least that's how he viewed it while he was recovering his high school diploma was brought to his bedside and he decided that this was going to be something that he was not going to waste. He had an opportunity. So this is when he decided to go to college. He went to the community college, and that's where he starts to develop some of these interests. You know, the seeds are planted here for his rebirth as he's studying photography, but also anthropology. And specifically, he's interested in the books of an anthropologist, Joseph Campbell. I don't know. If, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell, his work at all? 
Not so much. No, I mean, I, I've heard of him just because I know a lot about Lucas, but, but I haven't do- dove into his work, uh, Joseph Campbell's stuff. Okay, so Joseph Campbell was an anthropologist. His big book was called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And this was a big influence on George Lucas's work. What Joseph Campbell did was basically he looked at mythology across all different cultures from all different time periods. And he started to make notes of and study, like, what are the common elements of all of these different stories? What is the hero's journey? What is the hero archetype, if you will? Um, And so in that, he comes up with this sort of cycle of, you know, the call to adventure, and then there's something supernatural that happens, and our hero gets to the threshold, and then there's the abyss. They go down in to a death and rebirth and then there's you know an atonement and a return it like just the cycle of a story right love a good hero's journey yeah yeah as as a filmmaker i'm sure you're well aware of these beats just sometimes framed differently and using different words oh absolutely yeah we um i know a lot about the hero's journey definitely have done lots of studying and writing about that so yeah yeah, and so that was a big influence on on Lucas's thought as he was developing his stories. So he transfers to USC, and from my outsider's perspective, as someone who never went to film school, I thought, like, you know, 1970s, you're going to USC, like, you've got it made. I thought that's where all the cool people were going. But apparently, when he got there, people thought, like, film programs, there's no money in that. I guess at that time, Hollywood was kind of like a little bit of a closed space. Like the people that were really running the studios were kind of the old guard, people who knew people. It wasn't necessarily like you worked your way up there with the film degree. The idea was like when you go to film school, if you're lucky, you'll be making like industrial educational films. And if you're not successful, you'll be taking tickets at a movie theater. Um, I saw this story. Lucas's first professor actually told the, all the students, get out while you still can get some of your tuition money back. <laughs> oh, boy. That's <laughs> not very promising. <laughs> that, that's that's not a great sign. And I don't no. know what it says about Lucas that he didn't listen to his professor at that point. I mean, it worked out well for him, but yeah. obviously also kind of a risk taker. No joke. Yeah, he's definitely a risk taker. (laughs) Worked out for him, so who am I to second guess him? But (laughs) he gets there, and he said when when he's making these films and when he starts to study film, it just clicks, and he became obsessed. He started to make a name for himself with some short films and animations. You know, he's doing, like, the student film festivals, going around that circuit, and getting a little bit of buzz. Also, it sounds like he had a bit of an ego. People said that they didn't really know him to speak much in class. Like, he just would let this, the work speak for itself. Yeah. But they, the only times they'd hear him would be like, he'd walk up behind them in the dark room and just be like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's great. Like, it seems, it seems very fitting for, like, the persona that I you know, from an outsider have observed of like Star Wars and Lucas films and everything like that. Like yeah. 
it definitely seems like that's been the constant critique throughout his life is that it's his way. It's right. gotta be his way. And even, even as a, I don't know, probably 20 year old, that's the way he saw things. <laughs> but again, not entirely wrong because his sci-fi short that he was making in school, THX 1138 4EB. What a like, name. <laughs> uh, seriously, what a name. Like for that to get attention, you know it's not because of the marketing. Right. You know? yeah. Like th- there must have been something really well done there. That caught the attention of um Francis Ford Coppola. Apparently not just a winemaker. He's dabbled in film too. I don't know if you're just a touch. Yeah. (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) Just a little. So Coppola convinced Warner Brothers to make a feature length version of that sci-fi movie. Apparently, though, it was a tremendous flop. A couple critics saw some like glimmers of promise, but it did not do well. His next project was immensely successful, though. So he made American Graffiti. The actors in that also would go on to big things. I mean, Ron Howard had done some stuff before that, you know, like if we're in the seventies, Ron Howard was a child actor back on Andy Griffith, but also like, yeah, Harrison Ford, Richard Dreyfuss, you know, some, some pretty big names were not big at that time. They made that on a budget of 780,000. It grossed a hundred million. I mean, that's enormous. This guy knows how to make movies that make money. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, but... I don't know how he does it. Well, the thing I find found interesting, you know, I was watching an old interview in, in prep for this, and he was talking about when American Graffiti came out, he was just looking for, like, what's my next project? How do I get financed just to pay the bills? And before it was released, he was passed by every studio. Like, he was turned down by everybody except for one executive at, I think it was Fox, decided, like, you know what? I like this movie, American Graffiti. I think it might be okay because it hadn't been released yet, but it was just, like, you know, making the rounds. And on spec, he's like, okay, I'll finance you to write a script for what would eventually become Star Wars. And he then released American Graffiti was released. I mean, he didn't personally do that. And so it becomes this huge hit. And suddenly it's not so hard for him to get financing for stuff. The studio is expecting him to come back and ask for more money because generally that's what people did. But Star Wars, it was an epic. He had written a six hour movie and you know, nobody was going to release a six hour film. He knew he had to break it into three chunks. So he instead secured the rights to like the sequels and everything like that and got them to agree to make all three pieces in the trilogy, which I think that's an interesting move. Like as an artist, when he had the opportunity, like I could extract some more money. I've suddenly proven I'm a bankable, the it guy in Hollywood He's not going back to them saying, give me more money. He's saying, give me more films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really wanted to make those three, you know, and so I that was his way to secure it. And I think he gave up he gave up a lot, but was able to keep um, 
all of the merchandising, which is uh, interesting as well. That's how we made a lot of money <laughs> from that because the studios didn't necessarily care about the merchandise merchandising back then. Um, and so he, but he saw a lot of potential in that because he was like, I'm making all these cool characters. Um, and so uh, I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. Again, he's, you know, he's focused on the art. He's focused on the product. Yeah. And yes, there's a way to make money off of that if it's successful. Right. But he wasn't asking for a bunch of money up front. He, you know, it was the back end. He's like, trust me, this is going to be big. And when it is big, then I'll collect, you know. Right. But he let the work speak for itself. And he was mainly focused on just getting that work done. Now, after the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about that work. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. So now I'm back with Kalani Hubbard, filmmaker, producer, doing it all with pure <laughs> magic, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we're talking about the first Star Wars to be released chronologically. It was episode right. four, right? But it was the first Star Wars movie that he produced. What jumps out to you about this? This is, you know, this movie, A New Hope, is one of my all time favorite movies. I think. Most a lot of it has to do with just the story of how the movie was created, which is just such a crazy cool thing. I mean, uh, George Lucas writes these this script and he makes this movie so big that he has to chop it up into three pieces, which equals the trilogy. And he says, OK, well, let's start with a new hope. And um, and then the journey to get that movie made uh while filming they were running into so many issues on set you know they're uh getting uh hit it hit with storms and crazy stuff and sets get destroyed and it's really hot and you know all the stuff that goes on filmmaking it's just uh surviving all of the elements out there while they're filming and um then all the way through editing the movie just the story of how it was created i think is very cool and inspiring but also, the movie is just groundbreaking um, for its time. The, the storytelling and the, the pacing of it. And I think that when it did come out, it, it was just something brand new that people had never seen before. Um, and I love it when movies like that 
are just you can point to a movie and say this movie is the reason why like the industry changed and and this movie is why things are the way they are and there's certain movies like that i'd say um a new hope is definitely one of them jurassic park is another one you know yeah these these big you know jaws another one where these big movies that really are like a a big cornerstone of of film so um yeah i just Big fan of this this film. Watch it. I try to watch it at least uh, you know once a year. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, you know, you and I as art guys and different art forms, obviously, but we immediately start to get into like, well, how was this made? What's the story? Be-? Like, right. you know, like when you look when when most people go to the museum, they're looking at works from across the room to take it all in. And when the artist goes in, they're like noses up against the canvas because they're just like, how was that done? You know, and right. I imagine filmmakers are the same way. I I still remember as a kid watching Star Wars and just the bigness of it. Right. Like, it, yeah, like you could feel the sound as yeah. as like that score comes on. And then you see these lasers being shot that to me as a kid, I was just like, how did they get these lasers? What is happening? I had yeah. no concept that like this could have been some sort of a special effect. And then. You know, I've talked about Chuck Close and how Chuck Close was a terrible magician because he always wanted to reveal how the tricks were done. He said the magic was more impressive when you realize the work that goes into it. Star Wars to me is like that because when I realized, like, when I found out what rotoscoping is and how, like, Uh you know, you're taking those those frames of film and drawing on them and adding this stuff over the top. I mean, rotoscoping was not a new concept, just like matte painting wasn't a new concept or a blue screen wasn't invented there. But he was perfecting them and bringing them to a higher level than anyone had done before. Yeah, he was really taking all of these techniques and pushing them to their very limit and and kind of rethinking how you could do it. And I think that was so innovative. Yeah, and I think one of the things, you know, just because I can't go into a frame by frame dis- dissection of the entire movie. <laughs> but I, I think I think specificity is the soul of narrative to steal from John Hodgman. When we look at the lightsabers, and just everything that goes into that, they were using like dowel rods or something like that. You know, it's kind of like a very simple thing on set as the stand-in. And they're they're just blowing out the lights, right? Like extremely high lighting to get that reflectiveness. And then mm-hmm. th- every element of this comes together. Because I saw an interview with the guy who was like in charge of developing that specific tool in the original and he was saying well if it's a lightsaber lights traveling in in waves it's going to have a little bit of a flicker to it right so there's like Mm -hmm. every once in a while there's just like this shock of a brighter frame and then they're talking about like the sound that it's going to make and they're thinking about how it's going to have that little little bit of like a a phase to it right or it's like it's like that warbly kind of like you know all of those elements being brought together and you think about how much detail and how much planning goes into just the minutia of any successful yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it takes so much planning and, um, and especially back then, I mean, you, you didn't have, um, 
so much technology that we have now. And so they had to invent stuff and, you know, a lot of it is practical. And then what they would go do is kind of combine a little bit of practical effects with some like, you know, overlaced style effects, uh, compositing effects, um, all to compile together into finally this, this really cool shot, you know, and it's the same. It's funny because it's the same nowadays, you know, different tools, but the, the concepts still apply. I mean, when we were doing Sky Hoshi filming it, there's, she has a laser gun and there's a, there's scenes where she shoots her laser gun. Well, we had to, um, there's a specific scene where she actually falls out of this magical poster and, you know, the lights go crazy. And so we enhanced that by on set, we flickered the lights really bright. Um, yeah. And, you know, and so we were to capture all the lighting on set, we flickered the lights and we timed it correctly with her, the way she falls and holds her gun and all that stuff. But then in post while we're editing, we go and we do some overlay effects of, you know, lens flares and, you know, these bright, cool flickering lights. And together it becomes this really cool image where, you know, it just looks so larger than life and in real because it was half of it was real. And then the other half is enhanced visual effects. And so that's, that's totally the same concept applies now, even uh, back when they made Star Wars, same kind of thing, just different, different tools. So it's really cool to me. I still learn visual effects techniques and storytelling techniques from a movie that's this classic you know because you can still apply it to stuff today yeah and now can i as the person who has not been to film school ask you some basic low-level questions here sure yeah. can can you define for me um just a few terms because i want to make sure the audience also gets this um practical effects versus special effects um am am i correct in understanding practical effects are real world things like I stop the camera, you hold still, and we put something in your hand to make it magically appear versus yeah. special effects are like digital enhancements, like the yeah. overlays and stuff like that. Exactly. So practical effects is is a little bit in the name. It's practical, right? So anything you can touch or do in front of the camera, anything that you would capture in a lens without doing anything else with a computer or anything else. So that would be practical. Um, like you're saying, you know, you pause and you hand somebody a, you know, a, a, a lightsaber and then you hit go again on the camera and it magically appears in their hand. That would be a practical effect. Um, or, you know, like what we did in the movie, we flickered lights. Yeah. You know, that would be a practical effect for the lights to flicker. And then um, a visual effect would be, you know, uh, a computer or post-production enhanced effect. Uh, so that would be anything outside of what you captured in camera. Okay. And then composites, that's just, that's green screen stuff, right? Or Compositing, I guess in Lucas's day, it would be blue screen probably. Exactly. So compositing is when you take two elements and you basically put them together um, and you composite them together. So, you know, taking out a green screen, um, yeah. taking out the green and, you put the background behind them, that would be compositing two images together. Uh, a lot of people do it with explosions. We where There's an explosion in one of our movies uh, in uh, Plunder Quest. It's a venture movie that I, I wrote yeah. and directed. And, um, and that was just a visual effects composite. So what it was is we had real life footage of an explosion and uh, real life footage of a castle. And we were able to composite those two images together 
add sound effects. And uh, now you have a new image with an exploding castle. <laughs> and so that's what compositing is. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we get a little bit of the magic into the pure magic. Movies, <laughs> there you right? go. Um, exactly. And and that's one of those things that, like I said, some stuff George Lucas wasn't inventing. He was just perfecting. But some stuff he literally was inventing as a way of making the story that he wanted to tell. It was interesting to me. You talked about uh, Jurassic Park earlier. You mentioned that as like one of those classics. Well, apparently mm-hmm. when Jurassic Park was coming around – Spielberg wasn't sure if he wanted to use CGI for the dinosaurs or if he wanted to do something with go animation. Yeah, stop motion, right? It's it was sort of a bridge between stop motion and modern CGI. So as I right. understand it, he had and this is one of those things that Lucas came up with, Lucas and his crew. Like he wasn't specifically the only person doing this, but basically they had computer controlled puppets and like the camera making multiple passes and the computer, as I understand, would control the path of the camera to make sure that it it goes in the correct sequence and everything like that. Um, that, like that was one of those things that like he came up with because he didn't like the, the jerkiness of stop motion. You know what right. I mean? And so he's, He's taking it one step further, just like computer animation, 3D computer animation. Like he was the first person to be showing like the wireframe animation in a major motion picture for like that extended time as we're seeing like the battle plans and what the computer's seeing and and all of that during that that epic finale as spoiler alert, the good guys win. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, it's fair to spoil uh, A New Hope. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is it too soon? <laughs> uh, I think I think people, uh, ha- they've had enough time to watch it at this point. So. <laughs> yeah. But but he's doing all that stuff. And this is one of those things that I, I, I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate because it feels like it's just there. But he developed that THX sound. And, you know, the THX certification, it's not just like, oh, you've got loudspeakers. Like, it, they're talking about, like, the sound treatments on on the walls, the, you know, the floor being raised. Like, all of these things that affect everything to fine-tune it. And, you know, we tend not to notice something when it's there. But if you've ever seen a movie where an element is missing, even something that you don't – you're not consciously aware of in the movie – it makes a huge difference. Am yeah, I right? Absolutely. Like when you're missing something like that, it just takes you out of it. And I think what what I love about his his movies, it even though like yeah, A New Hope, like it's a little cheesy in some ways. It's formulistic because I mean, he's literally using the formula that an <laughs> anthropologist came up with. But it just works because he hits all those beats and it is so satisfying. And sometimes I feel like, you know what? The formula, there's a comfort in that. It's true. Like as an adult, I watch the Star Wars movies and it's like, I know how this is going to end five minutes into it. And still (laughs) I'm, I'm there for the ride and I'm loving it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there, you know, there, there is something to storytelling um, and 
there is sometimes sometimes the formula stuff can be really uh just satisfying you know uh it's a formula for a reason you know every every once in a while you just you you just need that movie that just gives you all of those beats um, yeah. and so yeah i think i think it's great when movies just hit that formula and and other ones you know can can go off the beaten path and do something crazy and i feel like there's a beautiful space for for both and uh but i love what star wars does it just like sticks to it you know unapologetically <laughs> yeah and i th- i think that's I th- I think that's the point is that it's unapologetic. It embraces what it is. He knew exactly. exactly what he was doing and he ran with it. And you know, I think that's part of the key to success is knowing where you are, what space you're occupying and mm-hmm. just running with it. Speaking of knowing your space and what you occupy, I work in awkward the way that you work in film. So I <laughs> like to wrap this in the oddest possible way. And I'm wrapping it up I want just a three-point rating scale. And Where should this hang? The Lou? Is this something to look at? The lab, the lab? Is this something to learn from? Or the Lou? British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a poop joke in there somewhere. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I love it. Love the alliteration. Um, that's great. I, I say it's for the Louvre. It is a timeless classic. It has done so much for, for film, for storytelling, for visual effects, for just so much of, of what film is today is because of, of this movie. Um, and, uh, I would say it's a, it's a classic that I'm, I'm a big fan of. So Louvre it is for me. (laughs) I, I gotta say, I, I'm having a hard time disagreeing with you on that because I do love <laughs> Star Wars. Um, just for the sake of being argumentative, I would say a strong case could also be made for the lab because I know some people, m- my wife is one of them, does not enjoy the film. But it is inarguably a piece that we can all learn from. There is so much to pull from in terms of just like the psychological resonance of storytelling and the elements that make something compelling in the hero's journey, but also the technical feats of this production that still apply today. I mean, things are done arguably in a more sophisticated way, but there's still a lot to be learned from it. And the practical effects, I, I'm a sucker for a good practical effect. I am always, always a fan of that stuff the engineering that goes into it i'm a huge fan of i appreciate the miniatures that are deployed in these pieces i think yes. there's just so much that is absolutely beautiful about the real world engineering for something that takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far away love it yeah well thank you once again um kalani hubbard the I, I want to make sure that I am doing my due diligence. If someone's going to be nice enough to slum it on my podcast, I want to make sure I'm plugging <laughs> your pluggables. We've got Instagram and TikTok at Pure Magic Pictures, PureMagicPictures.com, SkyHoshi.com. Um, I'm going to link all that in the show notes. But thank you once again for coming out to tell me a little bit about how movies are made, how that magic is made. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun.
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.